This podcast is brought to you by Maddox Lawyers, the lawyers to call when you need practical solutions to complex problems. Welcome to PX32. I'm Jess Noonan, and as always, I'm joined by Peter Jewell. Now, before we jump into it, just a reminder to visit our website at www.planningexchange.org for details of all of our upcoming podcast guests and also our Facebook and Instagram pages for behind-the-scenes photos and other information. Also, if you enjoy our podcasts, please give us a rating on iTunes or also leave us a review. Today, we're talking with Larry Parsons from Ethos Urban. Larry has over 30 years experience in planning and architecture. He has worked in both public and private sectors in Melbourne, the UK and Spain, and has ex- extensive experience in master planning and precinct planning. Larry has sat on both sides of the fences, having managed his own pra- private practice, as well as heading up the urban design units at both the City of Melbourne and the State Government of Victoria, where he managed the Minister for Planning's Growing Development Approvals Portfolio. Welcome to the show, Larry. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, how did you get into architecture? Basically, I was a fairly studious type at high school, a bit of a nerd even. Uh, I was good at science and art. And my father, who had always wanted to study engineering and wasn't allowed to, kind of pushed me into the technical side. But architecture was the kind of compromise which had a, an arty edge to it. And back then, it was like our first week at Melbourne Uni, we actually had sort of like life drawing classes where we walked into the room and there was a nude there and you were actually drawing it with a pencil. The human form is uh, an inspiration for many artists, yeah? Yeah, that's true. And uh, what were your early influences, Larry, when you started out? Uh, in architecture? Mm. Um, well, obviously the particular range of professors that were at the uni at the time. Um, I became involved in behavioural studies, uh, which is how the built environment influences the way people behave. Um, and so my thesis was one of the few which wasn't actually a building design. It was actually about the um, imaging and behavioural differences caused by two very distinct shopping centres, Chadston, which back then was um, largely open to the sky, the sort of more typical village model, and um, Northland, which was the enclosed sort of centric model. Churchill said, uh, we shape our buildings and then they shape us. That, that's fair? That's very true, yes. Now, we very have a lot, of, um, a lot of listeners from a lot of different backgrounds. Can you explain the interrelationship between architecture and urban design? How does one move from architecture into urban design and what, how does that impact each other? Yes, well, um, architecture is and urban design are completely blurred. I don't see a particular line between them, and I think that is great. I mean, and in other jurisdictions, like Spain, for instance, there is no line. People are taught the same skills together, so there aren't even separate planners. They are, it's all one thing. And Larry, um, Pablo Picasso was often heard to say, this is how modern art is supposed to be, free of sentiment, attachment to place and memory. Your response to that? Uh, Rubbish. And the fact (laughs) is that he himself (laughs) did not operate under those rules. If you look at his sort of key works like Guernica, it's dripping with emotion and imagery and references. So you think we should be sentimental uh, and have attachment to place and memory? Most definitely. 
And it's about much more than the sort of traditional heritage. It's about social heritage, which we're just beginning to um, delve into in the urban sense. Now, John Const Constable? Constable. John Constable said, we see nothing until we understand it. What do you see now that you didn't see 10 to 20 years ago? Ah, 10 to 20 years ago, I was much more in the pure design space. Since I have got more into planning and the statutory planning side of things, the thing which has most impressed me is actually the influence which planning regulation and governance structures have on the final built form and how powerful that can be. Although maybe in the past I used to poo-poo it and think it was all about design. Hmm. You've worked right across the globe, Larry. Can you talk, talk to this and how has that international experience shaped you? In, yes. In one minute. Yes. Well, <laughs> reflecting back on that, it's, it's the same thing. It's, if you look at the sort of the rules in the different jurisdictions and the impact they have, I mean, I worked in the Sultanate of Oman in the Middle East, and there they had a very enlightened sultan who put in place nearly 30 or 40 years ago a rule that there'd be nothing over eight storeys. And there still isn't. There's one building which they want to pull down, the Sheraton. And I've been back there two years ago. It is a fantastic place compared to Dubai. Absolutely amazing. Everyone should go there instead of Dubai. What makes it amazing? The fact that it's very human. Yeah. The fact that it's climatically much more responsive um, because not only have they not got the sort of glass curtain walls and all the rest of it, but they've also got um, the lower scale traditional um, tighter architecture with shadow provision and, and ventilation, etc. I mean, that was part of the problem early in, say, the 60s and 70s. There was the contempt for the past, do you think, Larry, in terms of placemaking and ignoring historical lessons and, and past generations' experiences? Uh, naturally. It's, I mean, we can't be locked and tied down by it. Cities have to change, and even Melbourne has to change, and even the middle suburbs have to change. Mm. Um, but yes, we have to obviously reflect on what we have inherited. And also the environmental, way, environmental methods of people coping with climate and things in the past. Yes, that's true. I mean, and when you, even in urban renewal times, there's areas which were not historically developed for town residential uses, and it's largely because there were reasons, like it was floodable. And now we are tending to sort of turn a bit of a blind eye to that with, with the associated consequences. And what did you do in Spain? Talk us through your work there. Okay, well, first of all, I had to get a Spanish architecture degree and get registered. Um, and then I actually, it was a combination of planning and architecture. Um, our practice uh, actually helped people put sites together as well and go through the planning process and then right through to building the buildings themselves and it worked almost exclusively for private residential developers. Um, so it was a sort of integral service and where you made the money largely was out of the architecture. Larry, we've talked um, previously uh, about uh, TDRs, transfer development rights. Yes. You've seen them work overseas. Can you just explain to our listeners what they are and what the benefits are? Okay, right. They are very big in France and Spain. I've worked with them in Spain. Um, basically, the planning for the city puts a line around an urban renewal area and everything within that area then is in the melting pot. Um, there's mechanisms, legal mechanisms in place whereby people do not have... They come together to form a junta or committee where the development rights 
go on title, not the piece of land itself. And there is a design done for the, the master plan for the precinct, um, which allows for the roads where they have to be without having to worry about where people had their pieces of land previously. It allows for all the necessary development contributions, including open space, including affordable housing. And it does that in an equitable way. And when it comes back and it's finished, people get their piece back. And if they've got an affordable housing piece of land, um, it's calculated as being worth less economically, so they get more of it, more floor area. So it allows flexibility in master planning, is that what? It allows flexibility in master planning, and it actually forces different owners to come together because there are mechanisms, if 50% of the people within that line agree, there are mechanisms to force the others out, basically to sell up. Is it controversial over there? Not at all. No. It's been going for over 100 years because in Barcelona, Ferda, he didn't just do the famous grid for Barcelona, he actually refined this system of transfer of development rights because Barcelona outskirts was not, it was owned by people. Mm. Larry, you've worked on both sides of the fence, private and public. Um, what lessons have you learnt from being a reviewer of schemes on the government side? What, what, what sort of, yep, tell our listeners what, you, what you've learnt from that, please. I've learnt from being on the reviewer, it's very easy to slip into the detail and the tick box. Uh, it's very hard to consider policy properly, which we should do, and see the bigger picture. And um, that's probably the main lesson I've learned in terms of that. In these previous roles with government, when people were pitching projects to you, what did they do right and what did they do wrong? There are some people who misguidedly have the view that what do we have to do to get over the line? That's and the that's, worst thing. That's the worst thing. That's the worst thing. And there are others who um, actually spend too much time explaining everything rather than getting to the critical points and having a, a meaningful discussion about those. There are some who suggest the government, in doing regeneration projects, and they're happening all around the globe, they are too timid sometimes, and maybe that's a reflection of past failures or wanting to have a small target. What do you do? You think government in these, you know, large urban renewal projects can be timid sometimes? Yes, government can be timid, and that's partly a response to the instantaneous nature of criticism nowadays uh, with the new media. So we have people who are very risk adverse, they're worried about tomorrow's headline. Um, so it's very hard to make the big hard decisions and very hard to actually um, be consistent uh, uh, beyond electoral cycles, which you have to do when you're doing these urban regeneration projects with a long life. On that though, do you think the projects um, in Melbourne, for example, or, or in Victoria, are more complicated than say, the projects you've worked on in um, Spain and Oman? Like, is there a difference or is it just that we have different mechanisms and different um, controls that don't necessarily promote development? It is partly about the controls and the background mechanisms. Like in Spain, urban renewal is possible because of the transfer of development rights. If that existed in Fisherman's Bend, it would have been a very simple matter. For instance, you have a school coming and you need an open space. You draw a line around a wider area and the developers all together um, provide that open space instead of the government having to actually compensate one person whose land it fell on. 
Do you think, um, Larry, Jane Jun- Jacobs has got a lot to answer for? I mean, after all, she stopped uh, Moses in uh, New York City redeveloping. And do you think governments, uh, that's filtered through to, um, to city government now? That strong government is seen as being um, not listening to the people, for example? I've never thought of her as being in that camp. I was being a little bit contentious. As, yeah. as, as I mean, a, as she a, was the other camp where she was actually challenging yes, some exactly. of the, mis- uh, the misguided project which, which government was then doing. Hmm. But do you think she's got a bit to answer for? Because she, was, she um, uh, took on city government and she won and uh, because of that, uh, community activists uh, are empowered to stop projects that maybe have metropolitan significance... Uh, the local has overcome, overtaken the, the metropolitan, the regional. No, I mean, that's certainly the case, um, whether she's responsible for oh, that. I was, I've been a bit yeah. facetious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was um, trying to kick him under the table, but my legs aren't long enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so um, leave poor old Jane aside. Um, <laughs> yes, I think there is very much that issue, um, which is also emphasised by the, the sort of the difference between electorates and swinging electorates, which is another problem that we have where things have to be um, balanced or metered out according to political needs. It's called listening to the people, Larry. But I'll move on. Talking of, uh, speaking of fires, have you ever worked on a project and later regretted it? Architectural projects, yes, for not going far enough, for being uh, very safe. and when you look back on them, you say, yes, that could have pushed the barriers more. Um, the problem in Spain, of course, was that architects are legally responsible for everything, from structures right through to everything that happens, so you get sued quite easily. Whereas here, architects have really pulled back from that side of it, and they are, in some cases, more, you know, sort of the decorators almost. Song Bowden provides town planning services throughout Victoria. They are recognised within the industry for providing planning, advocacy and expert evidence in VCAT hearings. So give Dave Song or Dan Bowden a call to discuss your planning needs. Salt, traffic engineering and Victorian planning reports. Larry, can we talk about client relations relationships? Um, when you first meet a potential client, what sort of qualities are you looking for? First of all, obviously, whether you get along, the chemistry, but also, more importantly, what phase of the development they are at and when they bring you in. If they are bringing you in late, where they've already decided upon what they're doing in terms of the design, it is very challenging. If you can work with the team um, to actually influence and assist with the development, then that is, that is much preferable. And moving on to ethics, everyone's favourite question, how do ethics play a role in urbanism and what do you say to ethics? Ethics are exceedingly important. Um, I am moving into the sort of the expert evidence witness space as well and they are incredibly significant there and it is a balancing act as to what cases you take on to you know, maintain your ethics and in, in, in urbanism, it, the ethics is, is total. And it's one of the sort of the wonderful traits of the current planning minister, that his ethic 
ethics is really high up his scale, um, and and that w it, that was an amazing thing to work with him in that sense. How do you see the formation of planning policy? It's obviously political by nature, but what what alternatives actually exist, and how do we foster new ideas? Okay, planning policy is in a very difficult space. Uh, it's very controversial, um, and Plan Melbourne is probably. In here in Victoria is a recent example of this where it has some very good high-level policies but it doesn't manage to actually balance the priorities between things which can be conflicting. Um, so people can find whatever they wish to, to sort of suit their policy um, stance and the difficult part is actually the, the juggling and how you get that into policy and how you manage it, I don't know the answer. <laughs> And can we talk about the status of planners too, because that affects planning policy, Larry. In some countries such as France, urbanists are greatly admired, but how can planners in the Anglosphere sort of improve their public image? I think maybe a part of that is the way that in some European countries at least they are at a higher level in terms of what they are doing. Here, planners seem to be tarred and feathered by the problems people have with their rear extensions and a lot of sort of the public know planners for that rather than for their forward-looking views about the future of the city. Um, so I think th things like Vicksmart where the government is trying to make those routine matters simpler and more mechanical is great, and, but at the same time planners have to get out there and express their views publicly about where the city should be going and what advantage there are in doing certain types of policy. And it's normally very hard for those people because a lot of them are actually in the public sector where it is very difficult to be vocal um, because you're in conflict with uh, some of the fundamentals of your employment. Mm. I like that um, the planners at Urban, sorry, Urban Ethos, Ethos Urban, um, have the title as urbanist. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that was a conscious decision. Yeah, it's really And it was good. to try and blend the different, you know, types of planners that mm. there are. Yeah. Mm. And we try not to um, actually sort of put people in boxes that mm. you're not always doing stat planning and not always doing strategic. Yeah. Larry, each planning generation seems to criticise previous generations of planners. I suppose that's part of that moving on. What are, what are we doing now that you suspect future planners will criticise? I would think that in this particular time, in this particular state, it's probably about too much emphasis on roads and um, vehicle traffic. Because um, I was around in the time when things like the South Eastern Freeway was stopped dead at Hoddle Street because the, the government decided not to build more freeways. And now, all these decades on, we're back in the same kind of place. What approach have you admired in city, in city development and city planning that has faded um, that you wish could actually be reactivated? I think it's the long-term planning and independence. Things like the old Metropolitan, Melbourne Metropolitan Board of Works, which was even before my time, but when you see their legacy, that they had control over everything from waterways to um, reservations for uh, roads and railways, um, it was quite amazing, the sort of job they did and the consistency that they were there and continued to be there as the government changed. Um, nowadays, we have Infrastructure Victoria, which is a recent addition, recent agency, which is independent, and it's a, a great move and they're saying some good things, but it is advice. They don't really have power 
or budget. There's certainly a common theme going on about Melbourne Metropolitan Board of Works. We've interviewed um, so both Nevin Wadeson and Phil Borelli, who um, both started their careers off there. Um, and it's amazing hearing about some of the work they've actually done and, and, like you said, the legacy they've actually left behind. Yeah. Larry, moving on to future planning, uh, let's talk sci-fi. You recently saw Blade Runner. Uh, Jess had some homework to see it, listeners, but she didn't see it. Um, what, I'll see it so this she week, can't I talk promise. anything about this next few questions. What does science fiction tell us about the present, do you think? Apart from the obvious things about the cataclysm of climate change and nuclear disaster, etc., which is the kind of background, it's got a couple of other messages which are more philosophical. One of them is about the the progress of technology, but that that is likely to be uneven and that there could be a haves class and a haves not class. And in Blade Runner, there were those who fly around in the sky and those who are down on the ground groveling, basically. And those that are up in the sky are deciding all the urban decisions and protecting things for their point of view. The second and maybe even more pervasive um, sort of philosophical part of Blade Runner is this attachment to memory and genuineness. And it's all about the replicants themselves and that their whole focus is to prove that they are real. But it's also about the symbolic things like people, a specialist who actually trades in pieces of timber, wood, and they have huge prices. They are useless, but they have a huge price because they are a piece of memory. This goes back to our friend Pablo and about the sentiment and attachment exactly. to place yes. and memory. So I wonder what if Pablo would think of Blade Runner. But also just looking at Blade Runner, uh, um, the urban densification there is taking things to its logical conclusion. And that's not that attractive, is it? No, it's not that attractive. It's kind of sexy in a way. And there are younger generations who actually thrive on that kind of environment the nocturnal environment, and I think it's, it's no, it's no but not by chance that it's mostly nocturnal. Um, so there is some allure to that as well. And, and how do you think planners can plan for new technologies coming into city spaces? I'm talking about the yeah. drones and uh, autonomous cars and things like that. I think we're not doing a terribly good job of that. I mean, I've had a big developer talk to us about their next high-rise might have instead of doggy doors, it'll have drone doors on the terrace so people can get their latest Amazon delivery while they're away. Um, but Plan Melbourne, for instance, has no real mention of autonomous vehicles, but we know now that the reality is maybe as close as five years. And whilst there could be even more vehicles on the road, there will certainly be less need for parking in strategic locations. And yet I'm still working on some projects where people are hanging on to the parking because of the revenue it gives. And the project life is longer than probably the economic viability nowadays of that car park. Mm. Do you think our cities will be unrecognisable in 50 years or so? Probably it depends. I think we might fall into two types of city. We might fall into sort of the memory city, which Melbourne could fall into that bag, where people hold on to it as almost a kind of an experiential attraction. And we're already seeing that by the type of tourism that we have, where we've got an endless market in Asia for people to have the Melbourne experience, and that's worth a lot of money. So there will be parts 
at least of cities which are maintained somewhat like they are, and there will be other parts which may become more Blade Runner-ish. We're talking about the, you're talking about the young before. Uh, are, do you think the young are too accepting of the status quo in terms of planning and design? I don't think so at all. I mean, my son is in the urban design field. He certainly is far from accepting, challenges me a lot. And one thing which um, is a common theme is the grey ceiling and that the young feel that um, us older people are hanging around longer and keeping the more important positions and that makes it difficult for them to actually have um, the impact which they might deserve. Now, you have recently returned to the private sector at um, Ethos Urban. What do you hope to achieve? Uh, basically, I wanted to have uh, more adventure, more variety, and I'm certainly getting more variety of projects, uh, challenges, um, actually impacting on the actual implementation of projects rather than assessing them. Mm. Um, so that's the main things, and just a change. I mean, I think change yeah. is just necessary and wonderful. Definitely. And talking about the creative process, our friend Pablo also said the creative process is a kind of complete emptying. Do, do you agree with our friend? I think it's probably the opposite. It's actually... <laughs> I don't like Pablo very much, you can tell this. And he wasn't very Spanish, he was more French. But anyway, um, he. it's about picking up ideas and filling your head and your thoughts with a, a mass of different things and you pick up from one project to another and everything you're working on influences each other at the same time and then the trick is in editing effectively to get to the right outcome. Well they say all great artists steal that's that's you you, you pick and you pick and choose don't you? Yes you pick and choose mm. yeah but a lot of it's sort of very coincidental as well. And in terms of urban spaces, the use of new mediums like sound and light and projection to improve the urban experience, that's really come along, hasn't it, in the last 10 years? So It has come a long way, um, and Melbourne has been very adept at that as well. They've done some wonderful work in the city of Melbourne in terms of lighting, and they've actually turned down the levels of lighting in Melbourne, and it's become more atmospheric and more environmentally sustainable at the same time. Um, and so it is, you know, a great credit to them that they have invested in, in this. I'm also thinking, Larry, the, the lighting of the buildings, like the, yeah, this using includes, lighting as a feature. Yeah, this includes lighting of buildings. I mean, there's the example down in Docklands at the corner of Burke and Collins where they, they do that. Um, it has to be selective. You don't want to have the whole city as being landmarks. Mm. It's, a, it's a form of urban art, though, isn't it? I mean, yes. It's yeah. Yeah. And where do you go to... And that's to what that actually was, was part of the urban art strategy for that building in Docklands. I, yeah. I think that in that building they the, the lighting changes to reflect the weather. Yes. I think that's how it works. Yeah. And where do you go, Larry, to the well to get inspiration? What, what are your sources? Travel. I love to travel and think about travelling. Um, walking around. So I walk to work normally. I walked here today. And I normally try different routes, even though they're longer and you see things. Do you read? Are you a podcaster? Are you... I'm not a podcaster. <laughs> not yet, anyway. <laughs> not yet. I've done, I've done my homework, of course. Um, I read. I go to the cinema, obviously. Uh, yeah. And Larry, just coming to the end of our uh, interview, what's, what's in the development industry and the urban planning space, what surprised you most in the last few years? 
What surprised me most, and I was probably very close to it at the department, was the impact of media and the impact that that is having on all sorts of decisions, but planning decisions particularly. And planning has become very much a media focus, uh, which is good in some ways, um, but is also dangerous in others because it makes it very hard to be a long-term thinker when the focus is on the day-to-day of the media. Now, Larry, how do you refresh and relax? Apart from what I said previously about walking, etc., um, I try, and it's very hard, to actually have some time with people who are not planners. Um, <laughs> Why? And because Why I've actually moved around a lot, that's hard because a lot of my contacts are through work. Um, but my wife's not a planner, and um, yeah, I have a f- some friends who are not, and it's, a pl- it's, it's necessary to be... And she's, she's Spanish, isn't she, Larry? And that explains yes. your excellent Spanish? Yeah, she's Spanish, yeah. And you've got very good Spanish? I've got very good Spanish, yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Larry, thank you very much <clears throat> for the interview. And um, it's, this is PX32 listeners. Please go to our website for further information. So thank you, Larry, and thank you, Jess. Thanks, Larry.